you picked a nice day to be hanging out in your PJs and coffee. So, but look, man, that's the first snow of the season. Who's excited for that? Oh, I wasn't sure if it was going to be silent. Like, nah, we're, we're good. Oh, man, hopefully it, uh, it's long enough to have some fun in it, too. Um, well, good to see you all. My name is Eric Thien. I'm the lead pastor here at Common Ground Northeast. Um, just uh, wanted to welcome you all um, and those who are joining online. Uh, and then before I jump in, I have a couple of little, uh, I don't know, just framing types of things for the series that we're in uh, that we'll jump into. Uh, but it's, uh, it's just good to be with God's people this morning. And even the words of that last song, I don't know why, they, they just hit me different this morning. Um, and just kind of that idea of lordship was, I think, a powerful one as we're, um, as we're asking Jesus to, to be within us and guide us and to be present in this place, that he would fill us up and overflow us out into the streets. Um, I feel like I should say amen after that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, um, there's, there's something really powerful about that. Well, as, as we jump in, what we're going to do today, if you have been tracking with us over the last few weeks, we have been in a series called The Bible and Sex, and it's already been really full. Like we've covered a lot of ground. In fact, honestly, the last two sermons were a sermon and a half. I took one and split it between the two so I could cover enough content um, to set us on a trajectory for these next couple of sermons. So if I did this well enough, the foundation that I laid in the last two um, sermons will, will be reference material for me. And so there's two, two things I need to point out. Is if you're here for the first time, welcome to one of the funnest conversations you've had at a church in a long time. But two, uh, there may be some things that I'm referencing that you don't know what I'm talking about. And, you, and you, it, to get the fullness, you'd have to go back and listen to those, um, to those sermons to get it. And I'll try to point out where those moments happen. Um, but they've been really full. Um, over the next couple of weeks, there won't be as much content, hopefully, because we can rely on those two things. Um, and then uh, I did want to reiterate that if you're in this room or, or watching right now that you're an adult or an adult has approved of you being here, I'm calling this PG-13 to kind of help people place where they feel comfortable having um, the younger folks in here, the kids. Uh, and so um, just, just know that that's the assumption as I move forward. And then second, as an addition to that, that you're just emotionally in a place to have this conversation right now, which is um, not an admission or, or a problem. Just like sometimes, you know, I'm not ready to have this conversation now, um, d- depending on your history or maybe not with the church right now, uh, and any number of variations of that. And that's okay. If you had to step out, um, you know, for those reasons, we want to give people the ability to know um, that that's, that's a, a fair uh, response in that situation. Second, that our congregation um, uh, continues to keep a tone of safety. We don't tend to struggle with this, but it's just always worth mentioning. The things that I say might challenge you, um, and my hope is not to alienate anyone, but to be as gracious and truthful as possible. And that's kind of the ending of last week was meant for us to all understand this idea um, that there are no superhumans on this stage or in this church, but that we're all people who are sinners in need of redemption, and we speak from that and the truth and grace that flows from that moment. All right? Um, the scriptures will often confront our ideologies, though. And so I want everyone to know that you are welcome here as you are. You're welcome into this conversation. We love you even if we disagree on matters dealing with this. Um, uh, today, we kind of dig a little bit deeper into things that I think are more personal. I want to open up with prayer as a result of that. So would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for, um, for what you've done on the cross. Thank you for just the, the message that um, Serena conveyed through that uh, through, through communion, and for us to just know um, that we live in that freedom on the other side of that, God. And so if the enemy wants to creep in and cause division, if the enemy wants to creep in and cause condemnation or shame or guilt, um, Father, we pray those things would not be present, God, but purposeful conviction might be necessary. And so, God, we invite that and just have our hearts open in a posture to trust you with these things in our 
life. And so uh, we ask for these things right now in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. Amen. Well, okay, so if you've been around for a while and you've had any conversations with me, this is going to kind of be like, yeah, obviously, man, we figured that out. And this might be the most controversial thing I say from the pulpit, but I'm not a sports guy. <laughs> That's hard to admit in front of all of you. So I, like, I play the part, and then I like start getting these conversations, and then someone t- throws out statistics or players from teams that I'm not aware of, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, cool, cool, and I start another conversation over here because I don't know those details. Now, to be clear, like, I love the Saints. Like, you all know that, I, I, and, and we watch every Saints game. I love to hate Tom Brady as much as every other sane person in this world does. Um, and I played, I played football in high school. It was a lot of fun. Um, but, but in terms of, like, a draw and a drive for me to continue to keep up with Sports Center and things like that, it's just not me. Now, we, as a family, own NFL Red Zone because my wife wants it. All right, let that sink in a little bit. Uh, I've had people tell me, I'm jealous of you right now that there is that much football. Like, football is a cultural thing that my wife loves and she grew up with. And as a result of that, we watch football a good bit. It's like kind of on in the background when we go home and and those things. And I touch base. I watch every Saints game. But it's one of those things that if she was not present in my life, I would never have even thought to turn a football game on, probably, to be honest with you. Um, now, I, again, I love it. I have fun. It's, it's a good thing. It's, like, it's something that, that, I, that we get to do, but it's just not something I'm naturally drawn to outside of those things. And there's some other sports that I like, um, you know, but, but in general, like, that's just not me. And, and as you process that, what you should be kind of paying attention to in there is that according to traditional American male-female stereotypes, masculinity, femininity, right, you could say that in our marriage then we're flip-flopped on that, right? That doesn't play out with the narrative that our culture has told us of what men like and what women like, right? Dudes like sports and women like, I don't know, romantic comedies or whatever stereotype you want to throw into that thing, right? Men are supposed to be aggressive, even violent, but at least assertive, Hunters, pursuers, not allowed to show emotion. And women are supposed to be dainty and passive, nurturers only, emotional creatures who are being pursued or even rescued based on our narratives. And so in an attempt, so, so check this out because it seeps its way into the church. And in an attempt to remasculinize the church, one church I led worship for handed me this book. Now, if you can't read it, it says, Why Men Hate Going to Church. Now, now, this was handed to me as like, hey, if you're going to be a part, it's a little bit larger church, they said, if you're going to be a part of this church, there's two things you need to read. And they, they say, grab your Bible, and I want you to read this book, and that is how our church operates. And I'm like, okay, so I, I read it, and to be honest with you, like, the heart of it is there is a, a, a large... Um, a loss of men, presence of men inside of churches. And they're trying to figure out, like, what are the reasons for that? And so the idea, though, is that in order to recapture men in our churches, we do so by creating a culture that indulges male stereotypes. All right? And so why men hate going to church teaches that we need to defeminize the church so that men want to come again. Get more manly men inside of the pulpit, right? Use more sports analogies. Talk about hunting. Highlight competition, action, and different things like that inside of the scriptures. Don't use feminine words like beautiful inside of your worship scenario, which was literally what was told me. I can't use, I'm not allowed to use songs that use the word beautiful in it. And, it, and it's interesting because it also kind of thinks low of men, right? Because I get that what they're trying to do is remove the boyfriend-girlfriend talk out of worship songs. But no man stands at the top of a giant mountain and thinks, like, how awesome am I? 
right? I mean, maybe, maybe. I mean, there's some egotism, right? But you look out at the top of a mountain and see a view that is so majestic that beautiful makes sense in that context, right? And so there's this idea, like I'm, t- I'm leading songs. The name of the, th- they, they say every time there's a song and it has that one word, if you want, you can change it for marvelous or wonderful. And so I'm singing this song um, in, in their service and the song is literally called Beautiful Jesus, right? And they change it. So in the song title, they have to name it its correct name, but every time they sing it, it's actually changed on the screen to Marvelous Jesus. Like, who didn't think, just don't do that song, man? That's just like a weird, don't, don't use that song, man. And so it's interesting to see this idea um, of saturation almost of this, this stereotype. So everything down to the colors, the walls, the website, were all gray, blue, and maroon because they are statistically geared towards men. Um, they are more appealing to men. All of it was done under the practical idea to, um, and I kind of say practical a little bit, with quotes, uh, because statistically it's true, right? It's not like it was operating off of nothing, but I think it takes this idea too far, and so the idea is if we get the dad to come to church, we'll get the whole family. And so they can kind of justify not meeting any of the other preferences of anyone else inside of the building. And, and so I guess, I guess I submit that to you. Maybe enticing men to come to church by creating a culture that indulges male stereotypes instead of the sacrificial love of Jesus was a bad idea. Maybe even dangerous. And it's not just the church, right? Like you build outside of it. Our culture has established so many definitions, even built social systems that assign traditional norms to gender behavior and performance. They're, they're often like hyperbolic, exaggerative, but one, tip, uh, one trip to the toy store tells you exactly what's going on here, right? This aisle is clearly pink and dresses and princesses and soft things, and this one is blue and guns and action figures and competition. And interestingly, the idea of blue and, and red or pink were flip-flopped in the last 100 years. 100 years ago, pink was, as a byproduct, was associated with red, which was a strong color. And so 100 years ago, when we thought of male and females, the representation of pink was actually a male association, and blue was a softer color, so it was um, given to boys. And somewhere in there, it just flip-flopped. I'm not even sure where, but somehow in there, it uh, completely switched. So, and so uh, what I want us to do is to kind of think through these ideas and ask the question, why do these exist? Where do these norms come from? What defines gender in the first place, and where does it originate? And one pastor I, le- I listened to, just kind of in study, um, asked this question this way. Ma- male and female, what does it mean to be a man and woman? Is it binary biology? If you have a penis and a primary hormone in your body is testosterone, is that what makes you a man or is there a set of behaviors that makes you a man? And is it just a vagina and a primary hormone of estrogen flowing through your body that makes you a woman or is there a set of behaviors that accompanies being a woman? And so can it, the idea, can it just be boiled down to anatomy and hormones and XY chromosomes? And the thing is, if that was true, what you would see is all of it would play out the same from culture to culture to culture, right? And, and, and so if you've been out of the country, you realize that some cultures don't translate those things in the same way. In fact, I was in Southeast Asia, one of the first times I ever left um, the country, and one of the first things they, they, they mentioned to us is, um, you know, there's kind of some norms that you're going to have to be okay with that, that you would typically seen as odd inside of, your, um, inside of your culture in the West, and they gave us some examples. Well, one of them, and I tried to find one I couldn't this week because um, I bought one, is a sarong. Does anyone know what a sarong is? Does anyone hung out with a sarong. <laughs> so it's like um, a tubular piece of cut 
cloth and you step into it and you pull it up and it's uh, like you do a couple of folds. There's a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it. I had to practice it over and then you roll down the top. But for all intents and purposes, visually from a Western mindset, it looks like a dress. And this is the normal traditional thing that a man would wear inside of Southeast Asia. And like, well, also men kiss when they meet each other on the cheek. If you've been to France, there's a similar um, scenario there and, and many other ones, but that's kind of one of the obvious ones. Men inside of Malaysia hold hands as they walk down the street together and it has no bearing on their masculinity or orientation whatsoever. It's just the norm, right? That's, this is my friend and we hold hands. And so it's like in our group, like kind of joke, a little bit of a joke, because on our end it's new and it's different, um, but, but you did have to understand like there was a different definition of what would be considered masculine or feminine inside of this culture, and we had to reorient our hearts, our, or sorry, our heads to that um, new norm. All right, so there's more to it than biology alone. I think we can safely conclude that. Uh, the definitions of femininity and masculinity culturally form to a very large extent. In fact, this is one of the major debates inside of gender ideas, right? How much is definition, how much of the definition is based on femininity and masculinity coming from a cultural um, construct? And then on the other side, how much of it is built maybe off of a, uh, 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 what would be considered biology or, or some sort of um, natural means um, through your chromosomes through the chemicals running through your body. And so the emerging generations that we are interacting with today are asking this, many other questions, challenging definitions surrounding gender that are different than other generations before. Like, is there a standard for definitions of masculinity and femininity or not? Is gender a binary or is it fluid? Um, before we go forward, I wanted to mention just this quick story. I was at a men's retreat in Phoenix, and, um, and it's like, I don't know, it's one of the, you, you kind of have this level of, um, it's just guys being a bunch of dudes and kind of indulging that surrounding, that environment. And so there's lots of jokes and um, different things that you kind of flex with, even if it's like, ah, I don't really, you know, I'm not really with that, or that's funny or not. But one of the times there was this, uh, there was a moment when the speaker got up and he was calling all of the men to kind of come back in this room. And it was, uh, it was a gymnasium, and so one side had the locker rooms and the, um, the men's restroom over here and the women's locker room and the win- women's restroom over there. And as he's calling people, he's kind of doing this home improvement thing and that kind of dates the group of people that was there doing the, I don't know, you know, kind of getting the guys to do this grunt thing. Uh, right? I don't get it, but cool, man. Like, I remember that guy from when I was a kid. But, um, and then all of a sudden, he turns that into, and he says, look, I'm in North Carolina. And he starts walking into the women's restroom. Okay, so if you aren't familiar, during that time, there was a debate going on because a man, uh, well, I don't even know which direction it would go, but somebody who was uh, trans and did not identify with their birth sex um, wanted to go into the bathroom of that person's birth sex, um, of that person's identity. And, um, and so it, it was all over the news, it was big, and this guy decided to make a joke about it. Now, I remember thinking, ah, it's a little insensitive, but like, whatever, like, it's a man, men's retreat. Um, and, and this was my eye-opening moment. I'm sitting next to a young man who is uh, a leader in our college ministry. He helped me put this event on. I mean, I was the one running most of this event at the time. Um, and he leans over to me quietly, and he says, if there is anyone struggling with their gender or same-sex attraction, they will definitely never talk about it at this retreat now. And it hit me like, oh my gosh, you just, like what you just said is a, for a cheap joke, you just alienated 
and, and remove the, the possible vulnerability of someone here who has something that they really need to deal with. And I didn't see it. I didn't think it was okay, but it was still like, ah, you know, it wasn't quite weighing it. And he was the one that raised my awareness like it's, it's not happening now. Because in his world, that's not an unusual conversation to be having. And so I think it's true, like if the church is not a safe place for those who feel a sense of dysphoria or are simply trying to make sense of their gender and sexuality, maybe even embracing that disagreement, then the church doesn't believe its own gospel, right? And so I, I think, again, I, Common Ground is a totally different culture than the one I was at in, um, in that church. Uh, and, uh, but I, do, I think it's just, it's worth bearing this just setting this standard, that behavior and jokes like that are unacceptable and will not be tolerated at Common Ground Northeast. There's a level of sheltering that needs to happen when people deal with things that are maybe out of the ordinary for some of us in here that should not be destroyed, relationally destructive because someone wants to make a joke. Does that make sense? Yeah. So as we approach this topic, I want you to remember, some of us will not all be personally engaging with the realities of the things I'm describing, but some people will, right? There's a personal and a public version of this. You've either experienced gender disagreement with your birth sex, and it causes tension and struggle, or you are embracing that. Or others in here have a no, like, I don't even get what you're talking about as you deal with this. There's a level of distance from the topical matter and the situations I'm going to describe that'll feel so foreign that you want to disengage. But I'm telling you, if you want to love people well, especially moving into this next generation, that you're going to have to pay attention to these things and enter into this conversation. So if it's not personal to everyone in here, but it might be, then it's a part of a public engagement that we have to be willing to involve ourselves in because it is your doctors and your servers and the pizza delivery people and the educators around you and your friends and your family and your neighbors and maybe people sitting in this room right now. And you have to know how to engage with grace and truth in those moments, even if it's not personal, it's always going to be public and we are called to love everybody even if they're not like us, all right? Some will say, the Bible says male and female, and that's all there is to it. And I'm saying to you, that's not a good enough answer now. It has to go deeper than that. It has to push into more of uh, the variables and the different things going on behind the scenes. And that certainly lacks kindness, if nothing else, right? And we don't want to alienate anyone. And so with grace in one hand and with truth in the other, I want us to ask this question as we jump into the scripture. What does the Bible say about this? And I'm going to do my best to give you some handles for that. Um, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Genesis 1 again. Uh, we've been in this already in this series, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. And I'm going to walk you through. I do want to warn you kind of this language. There's two ways that you I interact maybe in this conversation. One is a shepherding conversation, and one of it is like a clinical conversation, right? When you're having conversations about um, uh, j just uh, that, are, that are almost dry and, and can be um, sterile almost, if that makes sense, when you're just giving facts. Um, and I'm going to try and go back and forth between those two, but I want to maybe ask your forgiveness for when it comes across as too clinical um, and less shepherding. Uh, does, that, does that make sense as well? Uh, hopefully that, that'll, that'll kind of help set the stage for this. Well, let me read to you from Genesis 1, verse 26. I think it's up there on the board. Yeah. It says, Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image, 
in our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind, uh, humankind, in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. I want us to build on this and what it means for us to be humans. Genesis tells us that God created human beings in God's image. And so ontologically, right, when we think about humanity, uh, humans are intended by God's design to be image bearers, regardless of our culture, regardless of our background, regardless of gender, we are all created in the image of God. And so the imago Dei is the doctrine that we call that, I think just Latin for image of God, the imago Dei, is what primarily defines us gives us value, gives us dignity as people. And so if you want to kind of say like, well, obviously, that's, that's mainly a, uh, you know, a modern century kind of reaction to that because throughout history, that's not always been true, right? There are other systems, like take, for instance, survival of the fittest, that would say if you aren't contributing to society, then your value, dignity, and worth are actually less than others who can contribute more. And the scripture says that is not true of people who follow Jesus. He gives unrelenting uh, humanity, dignity, and worth to all people regardless of other uh, ways of evaluating humanity. And so it informs how we view life, it informs how we view justice, it informs how we view equity, it informs how we deal with reconciliation here at this church. So beyond your abilities, contributions to society, and any other definition that we might have, the Imago Dei distinguishes us from them and says all humanity has worth, value, and dignity. Second, the Imago Dei distinguishes us from all other earthly creations. God's image is not earned or given gradually. It is an inherent part of humanity as image bearers. Psalm 139 affirms it. It says uh, um, this, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know them full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Now in these verses, in Genesis specifically, both genders are called to rule the earth. So that mandate is given to both of them as God's representatives. Both were created to be in relationship with God, and both were created to be in relationship with others and each other. And so this means that our gender and our cultural, now, let me, actually, let me start, start this part over, because um, this is kind of what it means in, on the other side of this coin, that, that, that gender and our cultural and our personal and experiential val- variables are secondary and not essential to our humanity, all right? Let me, let me do that one more time. Our gender, cultural, personal, and experiential variables are secondary and not essential to our humanity. Now, this is not to say it's not important. They are just not the fundamental or primary definition of our existence. The Imago Dei holds that space, all right? Two, it says this. So we are all made in the image of God, too. Genesis tells us that God created human beings in God's image as male and female. And so each gender is fully human, but both genders are needed to represent the completeness of humanity, and some would even say the completeness of God. What we see is that the Bible writes from the assumption of a male and female gender binary all the way into the end of it, and we uh, see Jesus himself affirm this idea in Matthew 19 as he refers to the way God created us. And again, by, by, uh, in 1 Corinthians, there's another mention where an entire metaphor is built off of the assumption that we understand humanity is made um, male and female. Males and females are both the same in essence as fully human beings, but at the same time, they are different. 
I'm going to try and help define that just a little bit, but it might be more confusing than it is clear on the other side. little warning. Our attempts to define what is different about males and females has baffled people for generations. In the last generation, we had this book written called Men Are From Mars and Women Are From What? Dang, I went out on a ledge for that one. I wasn't sure if y'all would know it. Then there's a modernized version of it that says men are waffles and women are spaghetti. And the idea is to capture some sense of the compartmentalization of the male mind and the integration of the female mind. Now, even though we get these differences, like, like there's something about us in our culture that's constantly trying to figure out how do we, how do we make sense of these differences, Right? And, and, and though we see it, like we try to capture it, and every time we do, it's a little, uh, a little bit inadequate to describe what's going on. And, and then often, it's not just inadequate, but it creates restrictions that were never meant to be placed on men and women. And so I want to give you a couple of examples. Traditional gender roles created restrictions that the Bible, or let me say the church endorsed, that was not necessarily biblical. Our biblical definitions, quotes again, of gender roles are actually more informed by our American culture. I'm going to get more specific. In particular, follow me on this train, post-agrarian, so after farming, right? Post-agrarian patriarchal industries and family structures that crystallized into the 1950s. And so before that, everyone worked the farm. It wasn't, dad didn't not watch the kids. Mom did something on the farm while the dad watched the kids and vice versa. Everyone had a role. So there was this integrated understanding of the way they operated together. And it wasn't until that structure shifted during the Industrial Revolution that men went to work, right? That then eventually turns into leave it to Beaver with dad with his briefcase, kissing mom on the way out, and, and her role is to stay home, take care of the kids, and make dinner, right? Those things were crystallized. They're stereotypes. They are not biblical, Right? But somewhere in there, the church culture was like, let's grab that and make that the thing we call maleness and femaleness. Leadership in the church is another good example that women can't preach. Lots of views on this. Our church is egalitarian in our stance in this, um, you know, in this arena. Uh, but, but my point overall is just simply that uh, we have embraced kind of uh, what I would call this pendulum swing, right? We either want to say there's no distinction or there's so much distinction, there's restriction added to it. And then when we get sick of that, we're going to run over here. There's no distinction. And we get, oh, that's not good either. Then, there's, then restrict this thing again. And you can kind of see this pendulum swing that goes back and forth. That's why it's baffling. And so what I want us to land on, again, I don't know how clear it is. There is something about the distinct capacities and roles that are different between males and females, and we see it in Genesis, though our outworking of that probably fails almost every time. We are both supposed to steward the earth. Um, and, and so one last example that I want to give to this distinction is physically, I, like the most obvious reason, like physically I can't give birth and I was not built for that, right? No one's going to... Um, uh, no one's going to argue with me on that. Now, now, the other side of that gets a little bit different because in Genesis it talks about the, like we have this mandate to work 
uh, is kind of this farming analogy, and that in the, in the Genesis 3, after the fall, it becomes harder. There's thistles and thorns, right? And so in general, men have this larger physique inside of our, uh, inside of our culture, and that's generally true across the entire globe. Um, now, what that is for, what that equips us for, I don't know, because I don't know that I've seen a redeemed version of it. Does that make sense? And so as we build out these roles, what that is and what you decide those roles are, I am not intending to define for you today. That's for you to wrestle with. Um, But the idea that there's no distinction uh, is problematic in as much as the idea that we would restrict people with ideas of gender roles that don't even exist, at least not according to the scriptures. Um, And so I want to just read this last little quote, and this is kind of my final point here, is though we don't know the fullness of the differences, we can't just ignore the fact that we are different, but we also cannot acquiesce to just buying into easy, restrictive ideas um, that, that are not what the scriptures tell us to do. All right, Genesis, so, so what we've said is that, um, we are made in the image of God, we are made male and female. Uh, now Genesis uses the male-female paradigm and it describes the vast majority of humanity. They identify themselves as male or as female and most people will kind of grab that and get, I get that, right? But then there, um, there are other experiences, those who maybe have an experience of disassociation with their birth sex. Um, with the typical definitions of male and female or maybe some other variation of cultural norms that we've talked about. And so what do we do in those situations, right? If, 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 we, if many people identify with this way, we also, though, have to say, well, what about my friends or, or the person I know or myself who might say, I don't, I don't fully identify with the way that I was born? And I think the stereotypical definitions that we're kind of trying to deconstruct of masculinity and femininity contribute to that problem, right? The idea that, you know, competitive women are often considered less feminine, tomboys, bossy, men who are tender, engaged in maybe artistic endeavors, are seen as less masculine. Um, I remember this worship leader, a friend of mine who I knew in college, um, and uh, I don't don't know why, but eventually he just kind of got the nickname of choir boy, and I knew it was kind of... You know, the coaches, I think, started it, and it wasn't meant to be, like, super mean to this guy, uh, but it was definitely meant to point out, like, oh, you're the choir boy, you're not the, like, tough guy. And uh, he rolled with the punches all the time. I remember watching him do this over and over. There was a part of me, I wonder if it bothered him. And, and, and in doing so, right, we have used a stereotype uh, to cause harm to another person in that. On the other side of that, though, in the Bible, we see, um, we see this, men behave in uh, ways that would be not considered masculine to us today. And it says this. I'm going to quote. This is, I, let, let me give one quick um, side note to this. This is Preston Sprinkle, who I, I'm fully aware is kind of the eye roll guy in this conversation. That We know he's got this conservative bent, but I also think his academic work is phenomenal. And so I want you to let this kind of challenge this idea of um, uh, masculinity. It says this, in the Bible, masculine men behave in ways that would be deemed unmasculine by today's cultural standard. Men kiss other men, cry, or are tender and called to be tender-hearted, are profoundly emotional and relational, are called to turn the other cheek, to love, not kill their enemies, to weep with those who weep, to raise up the children and teach children, to be sensitive, be kind, and be peacemakers if they want to truly be men. Um, Okay, and so as it pertains to someone who may not identify with their birth gender, what I say is our definitions are contributing to that problem, and maybe we need to redefine our definitions, all right? That's a starting point. It goes deeper than this. 
Moving past that, there's still some who would say their gender experience is fully incongruent with their birth sex. I want to frame this just by giving you a couple of definitions. Um, I think definitions are important. I don't have time to give them all to you today. And honestly, just a sermon is probably not the best place for you to fully get this. And I can send um, a PDF or something out if you want to get these later. Uh, I'm going to give definitions for sex, gender, transgender, and then gender dysphoria, and then we'll move on to the final part of, of today's sermon. So sex and gender, just as a heads up, was defined as a synonym before the 1970s. And so if you're like, what happened? Like, that doesn't make sense. Like, what you're saying isn't quite, well, a shift happened in the way that the culture was using it. And then later on, the the people who helped with defining things, like, oh, we need to make this more accurate to the way we use it today. So before the the 70s, the word sex and gender, and I hope you understand, I mean, um, like, what is your sex, not, not the action of sex. So sex now is used to refer to the physical and biological dimensions of being male and female, the physical and biological dimensions, while gender is used to describe the psychological, social, and cultural dimensions of being male and female, like how you identify, right? And then that idea of gender gets uh, applied to a few subcategories. I'm going to name them. I'm not giving you a lot of description for those this morning, though. Gender identity or your experience in life, gender expression or how you present yourself through clothes, hair, mannerisms, etc., and gender roles, or how you relate to the cultural expectations of maleness and femaleness, all right? I'm not giving you those, but just know gender has more to do with the psychology and how someone perceives themselves versus their biology. Uh, Transgender. Um, It used to be more specific, but now it has become more of an umbrella term for different uh, ways of a person might express or experience their gender in a way that is uh, incongruent with their biological sex. So, so as they have a disagreement with their identity and, um, and, and their physical uh, biology, there's different ways that could express itself. And so transgender is just the umbrella term for that. This may or may not be accompanied by dysphoria because some people will just embrace that difference, um, which can be defined. Uh, so, so the defor- dysphoria part of that is defined as this, gender dysphoria. It is the distress that one might feel associated with the incongruence between one's gender and biological sex, um, feeling like you've been born in the wrong body. Um, and, and if you're in a culture that has no place for that, you feel incredibly alienated, right? So that could cause some uh, tension or some stress. Now, outside Genesis, there's another important aspect that I think is worth um, bringing into this. I'm going to try and summarize it because I don't have time for the entire teaching. Um, but there is this idea from a, a doctor named Dr. Nancy Piercy, Piercy, who wrote a book called Love Thy Body. I haven't read it, but I've checked out a few different articles and, um, and interviews with her. Essentially, the idea is that before conversations on gender are moral, like we try to take it, is this right, wrong, good, or bad? the way that someone's behaving, right? And she says, before we can even have that conversation, we have to step back and have a conversation about anthropology, meaning what is humanity? What, is, what makes a person a person? And so she points out that there have been a trend in our culture which mirrors agnostic ideology. That just means there's a separation. I'll give you the definition for that here. Just like the first century philosophers did during the time of Jesus. Um, where they elevated the spirit or the spiritual realm and they de-escalated or or minimized um, the material or the physical. And so the overall idea is spirit is good, body is bad, all right? Spirit is good, body is bad. And in doing so, they created a depiction that that they're two separate things that were never supposed to be separated in the first place. 
all right? I'm going to read one quote from her just to help redefine that one more time. The early Christians faced a culture that placed a low value on the material world, just as modern materialism does, though for different reasons. The church was surrounded by philosophies like Platonism, Manichism, and Gnosticism that treated the world as a place of evil and corruption. And here's, here's the line that's worth focusing in on. They denounced the body as a prison and defined salvation as escape from the physical realm. Christianity bought into that, right? When we die, our bodies go and our spirit floats up into heaven. That's not true. We get resurrected and we live on this earth in the new heavens and new earth. And so that's one way in which this has crept its way into our circles. So is with the body. As an alternative, Christianity from its inception and its Jewish roots has always said that the physical and the spiritual should not be separated. All right? That your body and your spirit were always meant to be one thing. That we are not just people with bodies. We are embodied people. And Percy continues to point out that this ideology, any ideology that promotes these things, that your gender identity has nothing to do with your biological sex. That your identity or, as male or female is not a part of your authentic self. That the mind is at war with your body because in that war, it's the mind that always wins and your body is not an important part of who you are. That all of these things are redepictions of that separation thought. Spirit good, body bad. And it has a dangerously low view of the human body. Why dangerous? Because this is the kind of ideology that opens the door for things like body dysmorphia. This, is, this idea creates tensions like body disassociation. And one example she gave up was hookup culture relies on the idea that you can disassoci- disassociate yourself from your body. She gives a quote from a woman, a young woman named Alicia, who said this, hookups are very scripted. You learn to turn everything off except your body and make yourself emotionally invulnerable. So it has this internal tension when we try to separate those two. A secondary thing is it creates social dehumanization. Racism is a result of separating those two ideas. You can be less than, you can be dehumanized. Genocide depicted as ethnic cleansing and unethical practices in law and justice. That's what happens when we separate these two things. And so the idea is that she's saying we have to reclaim a better understanding of a love, hence the name of her book, Love Thy Body for Ourselves. Um, I have uh, an example from the scriptures that I'm going to skip over just so you know that. Um, uh, And I'll I'll put it out on the notes later on if you're interested. But let me jump to her final um, conclusion here. She says that the uh, the way forward is to reclaim a high view of the body, to love your body, to respect your body, to honor your body as the loving handiwork of God, and in doing so, you, you, you cannot embrace this separation idea. And so the hope is that we would live not separate from, but into our bodies, but that might take a long time for us to relearn. And so she says it's more like therapy than it is anything else because you have to work through bodily pain and trauma of your past. You have to be at peace with your body and find joy in the quirks and idiosyncrasies and ultimately feel at home in your body. And this is what she presents as the best way forward. Um, As we transition into the ending here, uh, there's a couple of things that I think are are helpful for us to understand as as we walk out of this. Um, Let me just quickly summarize. Christians, as Christians, we are embodied people. We are made in the image of God, and that is depicted as image bearers represented by male and femaleness. All humanity 
is, all of us are human, uh, but differentiated through our maleness and femaleness, but the Bible does not give us guidelines for how men and women are supposed to act or defining masculinity or femininity or any gender role, really, outside of the culturally specific moments that you are reading them in. This is all stuff that you're going to have to wrestle with. Um, okay, so if you buy in that this is theologically true, it's like, what do, we, what do you do with this, Right? If, if this is theologically true, how do we engage with someone? And remember I mentioned that some will deal with this personally, or some will walk through this personally. Some will only know this from a public standpoint, but there's also a political, um, and I'm borrowing from uh, 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 Dr. Um, Mark Yarhouse for this next little paradigm. Uh, and by political, they just mean civic or systemic. All right? And so uh, this, is, this is what I want you to see. There's a couple of lenses that people tend to look through these things through. One is the integrity lens, one is the disability lens, and one is the diversity lens. The integrity lens focuses on the creation story and God's original intent for creation. And so that term integrity means that our ideas, since God made it that way on purpose, we need to do everything we can to restore God's intention for creation, including male and femaleness, and we are meant to bring the integrity back to that design. Do you see how that word plays in there? The second one is a disability lens. So this lens focuses on Genesis 3, like the fall, right? So the first one was creation. This is the fall. And it says that it's probably better to view something like this um, through, and explain it through the idea of that there are different ability variations that just occur in nature. Scientifically, nobody knows or can conclude how or why gender disagreement happens. All right, there's lots of theories, but no conclusions. But as a Christian, this is what typically happens. Why does something like gender disagreement occur? And we will say something like this. It's a result of the fall. That would be an operational um, action of the disability lens. It's similar to hearing loss. The hearing as a function is not working as it was meant to be, but it is not attached or imbued with moral significance, sin, or disobedience. That's an important distinction from the first one, Right? That this is something you may um, walk through, but it is not necessarily attached to sin or disobedience. Third, and this is the last one, is the diversity lens. Variations in gender should be celebrated and honored in our emerging culture as a positive part of human diversity. Now, this lens asserts that there is no single norm for gender identity and transgendered persons should be affirmed and welcomed. This is the approach our culture has taken, but it doesn't reflect any kind of biblical perspective on gender. And this is probably the most popular um, you know, lens in our culture right now. Now, what I want us to do, because usually what happens here is, now I'm going to tell you which is the right one, and I'm not going to do that. What I want us to do is see the best in all three of those, and I'm going to ask you to act in grace and truth on the other side of that. And so this is what I see in the integrity lens, the pauses, it plays a high value on biblical orientation as depicted through Genesis, but people in this category tend to view it as a black and white, and they become very judgmental and exclusionary in their interactions with people. Have you seen that before? They treat anyone who has a non-binary experience as willful disobedience, saying sinners just need to stop sinning. They tend to take an offensive posture in the public sphere because they believe their rights are being threatened. And so they can accidentally and sometimes intentionally marginalize people who are not like them. The disability lens, there's positives and negatives there. It also holds an important biblical truth and it engages with a high level of compassion. It doesn't assume that the experience is willful disobedience, but rather an affliction that needs to be embraced. 
And so what happens is it takes a helpful public stance and even advocates for people at times with those who don't have a binary, uh, sorry, a binary gender experience, but can come across at times as just pity. It's negative terms then. Sometimes it doesn't take seriously enough that people don't make sinful, do make sinful decisions that sometimes flow from the conditions that, don't, that are not originally sinful themselves. I, I stuttered. I'm going I'm to go back and restate that. So people do at times make, uh, this minimizes the fact that sometimes people do make sinful decisions that may flow from a condition that's not sinful itself. And then finally, the, the diversity lens. Um, it, it, the positives is that, that it's a public posture of advocacy against the marginalization of non-binary people. All right? It attempts to address questions about identity and community that don't get addressed in the first two lenses or usually by the church at all because they can be preoccupied with just correction of a person. All right? So where do I belong? How can I be myself? And so the negative, though, for us as Christians, as those who follow Christ, is it gives no credence to the created design or biblical truth. And so here, here's how I think we s- synthesize these. It kind of depends on which lens you, you, you lean towards, right? So if you're the integrity person, in order to, you, you're, you're so focused on restoring God's creational intent, you want to heal or change somebody or their person's gender, uh, person's gender identity. And the problem is, uh, do miracles happen? Yeah, but that's not always going to happen for someone. And often the attempt to do so is not just jarring, but harmful to the person. The disability lens, if you kind of operate from that, since it's, uh, the, the idea is since this isn't going away, then let's help you foster a Christ-likeness of endurance through the reality of it. So there's some compassion there and, and a commitment to say, I will walk with you through this no matter how long. How can I be present? How can God be present in this person's condition? How can someone grow in Christ-likeness with something that they may never be healed of this side of eternity? And I think the good from the diversity lens here is that Christians often want to throw this one out because it doesn't include contribution, but I think we can learn from this as a means of self-correction on our non-biblical gender stereotypes that have contributed to the problem. It confronts us and challenges us to say, hey, maybe we need to change some things in the way that we have embraced the culture and stereotypes, gender roles, and how exclusionary we herald the nuclear family, right? And what I mean by that is, if you ask somebody to be celibate their whole life, you're also asking them not to have a traditional family Thanksgiving, right? You don't realize how often we just retreat back to our families in those situations. So what does it look like to be a family, a group of families, a church of families that is so open to somebody who wouldn't normally fit into a structure that excludes them that they feel like part of the family? Um, Okay, there's a lot to think about, um, and I hit the peak time of my allotment with you all today. I appreciate your attentiveness, and if there's questions, we can have those later, and I'll try to post some of these definitions later. Um, your house's presentation of these options is good, but I want to hope for a sweet spot in the middle that, that somehow synthesizes and incorporates all of the good of what I just read about, all right? I want it to engage this walk with grace and truth. And then finally, if you're here today and you have a gender disagreement and, you, and that's something that's you personally, you walk in that, I am sorry for the way Christianity has treated you. I am sorry for the way that it has marginalized you. And my prayer is that you don't internalize 
seclude yourself from Christian and the community that's there, but when you're ready to talk about it, you do. I pray that myself, our family, and our church, Common Ground Northeast, is a place that is safe to be open and vulnerable and help navigate anyone through their experiences like this. And while I haven't had an experience with gender disagreement, I have had an experience with depression. And I know that if the weight of this is on you and you alone and you just internalize this, it will take you into a very dark place. And so my, my appeal to you is when you are ready, please talk about it and share that burden with others if it is a burden to you. Um, I want to walk with all people <laughs> and sometimes shelter them from the negative force that wants to come down on top of them no matter what level, uh, no matter w- why the marginalization occurs. And my hope is that Common Ground would be a family that does the same thing, willing to reorganize ourselves if necessary so that we can include all people who are seeking Jesus. I'm gonna pray for us as we end. Um, the worship team is gonna come up. Uh, and my, my, I wanna ask you just to maybe, maybe think through this prayer and ask where you would have a contribution to this. Where, where have you maybe heralded truth over grace? Maybe you have overgraced and not truthed enough. Um, and, and that's not an easy thing to do, but ultimately we are called to love people wherever they're at. And so I wanna call us into that idea, but even into a better understanding so that we have a sense um, of, of, of getting involved in something in a way that does not further hurt people. All right, let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your word. My ultimate hope, God, is that anyone with gender disagreement finds a place of shalom and peace with themselves. And I know that that can only come from you, Jesus. So whatever that looks like, God, I, I, I just invite that. I pray that Common Ground becomes a community that helps people walk wherever they're at, God. And that if we have embraced unhelpful or even unhealthy and problematic paradigms with the way we structured ourselves, with the way uh, that, that um, we have heralded truth, uh, Father, I just pray in, in confession that you would correct that in us. Well, let us be open, God. Let us be people who step in between the hurting and the ones who are doing the hurting. So God, we ask and we invite these things in now. God, if there is anything in our hearts that you want to bring to attention now, if there's uh, any kind of confession or, or, or forgiveness that needs to be sought out, Lord, I pray that that would happen as well, Lord. And um, in the midst of this journey of the Bible and sex, God, uh, we just invite you once again to be the ultimate um, redeemer, the ultimate healer, the ultimate uh, advocate on our behalf, and the ultimate teacher, Lord. Speak to us, give us ears to hear and eyes to see. And we ask for this right now in Jesus' name. And all God's people said.